one with Japan to West Africa and on channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. I am Spomelele Zondi and I'm with Amanda Machaka, Jolane Tulo and Musibudi Mapura. Your top stories, the newly reconciled leaders of South Sudan call for a South Africa-style truth and reconciliation commission. Today, the world shines the spotlights on people living with albinism. In economics, OPEC folk forecasts that the world oil markets will be more balanced in the second half of the year. In sports, Wales' national netball team arrives in South Africa ahead of the Test Series. Amanda Machaka has a news first. Thank you, Spumalele. Good evening. The United Nations envoy to Libya has condemned the torture and killing of 12 people after their release from a militia-run prison. The 12 were tried on charges of killing protesters during the 2011 uprising against Muammar Gaddafi. Justice Ministry spokesperson Wassam al-Sagir says they were released on Wednesday, but on the following day their bodies were found in different parts of the capital, Tripoli. The bodies had bullet wounds in their heads and bore signs of torture. UN envoy Martin Kobler earlier said he was utterly shocked and saddened by this vile crime. Libya slid into chaos after Gaddafi was overthrown and killed, with an array of militias taking over much of the country. The Niger Delta Avengers, a militant group that has carried out attacks on oil facilities in Nigeria's southern oil region, says it would only negotiate with the government if independent mediators assisted. The government last week offered to hold talks with the group, which wants a greater share of Nigeria's oil wealth to go to the impoverished Niger Delta region. The group also said in a statement it may review its earlier stance of not taking lives if if its demands were not met. Cameroon, Nigeria and Benin military are putting up a regional offensive in Lake Chad and the Sambisa Forest strongholds of Boko Haram as Niger and Chadian troops attack the terrorists. The attack is in response to a recent attack that left 26 soldiers dead in Niger. Monkey Kinzaka reports from Yaoundé. Cameroon soldiers sing what has become their traditional rallying song as they get set for an expedition to free the Lake Chad Basin area and the Sambisa Forest from Boko Haram. Cameroon military spokesperson Colonel DJ Bajek says the fighters have for close to a month now been harassing the population of the area, stealing food, supplies and killing. He says within the past three weeks, no day passes by without acts of exaction and killings by Boko Haram. He says Cameroon soldiers reacted violently after an armed attack on their positions. U.S. authorities are investigating whether a gunman who killed 49 people at a gay nightclub in Orlando, Florida, and declared his allegiance to Islamic State received any help in carrying out the massacre. The FBI and other agencies are looking at evidence inside and in the closed-off streets around the Pulse nightclub, where Omar Martin executed the deadliest mass shooting in U.S. history. FBI spokesperson Lee Bentley says law enforcement officials are looking for clues as to whether anyone had worked with Martin. Police negotiated with Martin for about three hours before breaking a hole in the wall, which allowed hostages to escape. He also emerged from the hole and was shot dead. 
Meanwhile, the South African Embassy in Washington is still trying to verify reports that a South African-born man was among the victims in the Orlando shootings. 49 people and the government died in an attack on a gay nightclub at a gay nightclub in Florida. And that wraps up the day's bulletins. Your time is 19.05 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Child Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Thank you very much, Amanda Machaka, for that news update. The newly reconciled leaders of South Sudan have called for a South Africa-style Truth and Reconciliation Commission to heal the scars of a gruesome war in the world's youngest nation. President Salva Kiir and the newly appointed Vice President Riek Machar, a former foe, said in a joint statement they were committed to ensuring that South Sudan never again goes through a civil war. The two leaders said the Truth and Reconciliation Commission would have sweeping powers and be able to investigate everybody from the poor as farmer to the most powerful politician. To help us analyze the pros and cons of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Sudan is Professor Klingum Kize of the South African TRC Reparations Committee and Professor Leon Vessels, a former member of the South African Human Rights Commission. There was a total political commitment from the leadership, especially the majority party, which was then led by President Nelson Mandela, to say we have to have a balanced understanding of the nature and extent of gross human rights violations. But the aim was not to pay revenge, but was to build the, the, the South Africa in line with constitutional democracy values. So I think I was stood up because people have expected the, the, the bloody transition apartheid uh, to democracy, but the, the, those uh, political moral commitments from the leadership of, of, from all sides, I must say, it really made the we visited several the, the whole the continent got interested in how we're getting it right. Uh, Professor, your thoughts around maybe Africa adopting the same approach of not just going into new governments immediately, but also take on that stance of a transitional process. I have been to South Sudan and I have sat down and uh, spoken and debated informally with a variety of, mm-hmm. of role players there. Uh, it is a complex issue and one has to understand exactly the challenges a new nation faces after they had been involved in an internal conflict, revolution, war, what, uh, whatever the case might have been. And I think the challenging thing is to, to arrive at a point as was stated uh, by by my colleague uh, who's participating here, that you have to try and build through this process a national consensus. And the national consensus does not mean 
that you will turn a blind eye to what had happened in the past, be that on, on, on a civil rights level, on a political level, or on a socio-economic level. You have to address those issues because they will simply not disappear, simply because you are now shaking hands and uh, have, have settled and agreed to a new uh, dispensation. Those are critical issues that will remain there. And I think the one thing that we are learning right now, 20 years later, that people on some issues that were not properly dealt with 20 years ago still haunt us, a variety of them. The inequalities in our society still haunt us. Racial prejudice still haunt us. So you never arrive. Uh, it's an ongoing process. But you reach a remarkable stage when you agree that we have to move forward and you set out your objectives. That's Professor Leon Vessels, a former member of the South African Human Rights Commission. You also heard from Professor Klingem Kieser of the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission's Reparations Committee. They were speaking to my colleague, Benjamin Mushatama. The Nigeria Army has reportedly retired an unspecified number of senior officers, premising their retirement on what it called service exigencies. A statement by the Director of Army Public Relations, Colonel Sani Usman, said the Nigerian Army Council approved the retirement of the officers up of Major General, Brigadier Generals, Colonels, Lieutenant Lieutenant Colonels and Major. For more on this and other big stories coming out of Nigeria's economy, so spoke to Ahazia Suleiman. He is the news director at The Voice of Nigeria. The Army said they were retiring some senior military officers. Uh, the number is not specified. Uh, as I speak with you, no name is known. But the social media is awash with uh, speculation of who and who those who had played some key roles prior to the 2015 uh, general election. Those who were close to powers that be, those who were in authority, and those who had uh, some things had to do with the purchase of um, arms uh, for the fight against insurgency in the northeastern part of uh, Nigeria. So those are the category of officers. The number, the figure is not yet known, and uh, the names are not attached to even. There was a Plain statement by the uh, Army spokesman, Colonel uh, Saniku Kasheka, Usman, and um, as I speak with you, no name is attached, uh, no figure is precisely known. But basically, the reasons given were those who played prominent roles. Uh, they didn't remain neutral as military men that they are uh, during the 2015 elections, and those who had their hands soiled in the scandals of the purchase of armed presidency, whether they were in the field there, whether they were in the head office, and if they had their hands uh, soiled in the corruption scandals that rocked the high military high command, uh, if their names were there, those are the category of people. So some people, based on these two uh, things, people are naming names. But uh, all that is speculation is the social media that is awash with some names and um, we cannot uh, officially or authoritatively say so and so person is in the list. The army is yet to officially release the names of those who are affected.
Now, officials have also announced that Nigeria has agreed to Cameroon's voluntary return of 80,000 Nigerian refugees who fled at the Boko Haram Islamic insurgency. Can you tell us about this? Are conditions conducive for them to return? Yeah, the UN Human Rights um, Refugee Commission and uh, the local, the national um, humanitarian uh, agencies and um, what we call uh, the agency in charge of um, all these emergency things, NEMA in Nigeria, and the Nigerian government. Yes, you know, during the insurgency in the northeast, Borno State, Adama State are bordering Cameroon, the Republic of Cameroon, and it just in some areas, even you just take a bike for five, ten minutes, you're already in the Cameroon. And because the insurgency was too hot in those areas, a lot, lot of Nigerians crossed over to the Republic of Cameroon. And now that the pressure and the insurgency in the northeast has mellowed um, down and been reduced into uh, non-existence completely, blocked only in the Sambisa forest. A lot of Nigerians are agitating to come back home. So the uh, UN agency in charge of refugee and the Nigerian government want to bring these people back. They have been coming back in trucks. Cameroon and Nigeria have that agreement already. Not hundreds of people have already returned to the country from the Cameroon. But now this one, they want to do it in a more sophisticated, in a more systematic way. You don't just bring people and dump them, but they should... They'll be taking care of what is happening right now in the northeast is rehabilitation and resettlement of all those who fled their communities, their villages, their towns and cities uh, that are coming back. They are being resettled and they are being rehabilitated so that they could pick the pieces and begin to move forward. So that is exactly what is happening. And the UN is coming in uh, handy with agreements and understanding of the Cameroonian government. Even while they were there, so in Niger, the Nigerian government had made efforts to send some relief materials to them in those countries. But now that they are returning home, they will identify where, which communities they are from, which villages they are from, and they will go and reconstruct. Outside the returning of the 80,000, already the Nigerian government has set up a committee that uh, is working assiduously to ensure that all returnees are taken care of. That is Ahiza Suleiman. He is the news director at The Voice of Nigeria and he was speaking to Zikona Miso. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana, reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 
You can find us on info at channelafrica.co.za and email that is info at channelafrica.co.za your time, 19.16 Central African time. Thank you very much for staying with Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa. This youth month, the Nelson Mandela Children's Hospital Trust and the Nelson Mandela Children's Fund will be co-hosting an intergenerational dialogue. The purpose of the dialogue is to connect different sectors of society and continue the conversation about the South Africa that I would like to live in. Part of the discussion would be locating various actions and assessing if they are building or breaking the country. Secondly, it's to motivate others to ask themselves what their responsibility is towards building a South Africa that they can live in. Mary Jane Morifi is the global campaign leader at the Nelson Mandela Children's Hospital Trust. What prompted it is that we were in the office talking about what is the South Africa we want to live in and how are we contributing to it. And this was to try and locate the things that we are personally doing in our personal capacities to either break or destroy the South Africa we want to live in, but also to connect our work with, you know, looking at how it's contributing to a South Africa we all want to live in. And we thought it would be great to do it in the youth month and get various generations talking about this topic. Now, you're going to be having the people from across the generation palette um, engaging one another here. Who will be participating in this uh, discussion? And uh, just tell us a little bit more about uh, that topic, you know, the South Africa that I would like to live in. Yes. Just let me start first with some of the guests and participants that we have invited. We tried to bring in, as you as we said, you know, across uh, generations, but also individuals working in different sectors. It's, they are not representing their sectors, but we wanted to combine and do a profile of participants that would include people from the civil society and NGOs, student activists, religious institutions, corporates, youth organizations, some individuals from academia, school learners, and ordinary South Africans to really kind of say, can we bring these individuals around the simple topic of what is the South Africa that we want to live in? And the topic itself, you know, the South Africa that we want to live in, we believe that every citizen in South Africa should be an active participant in building a South Africa they want to live in. And can we get aligned on what is the South Africa we want to live in? We've got Vision 2030, which gave some idea of what the vision for South Africa is, for the future, but all of us, you know, around our dining room tables, when we are with our children at church or whatever, we talk about what's not working or what's working in South Africa, but very rarely do we talk about what is our responsibility, personal responsibilities as citizens to building the South Africa that we want to live in. Mm. Now, it's often said, Mary Jane, uh, that uh, the youth of 1976, you know, as we commemorate June 16, had a clear purpose and reason to take action with the very well-known Soweto uprisings taking place. What issues do you think are plaguing the youth of 2016 that should really be dealt with? I mean, we've seen some of the conversations around the fifth must fall and roads must fall and some of the statements in terms of that some of the young people have been making around, you know, whether the 1976 grouping, once they got that momentum going and South Africa got liberation, maybe we put the foot off the pedal a bit. And we need to find a way of getting the young people to also be part of determining what this future is. They're inheriting, yes, something that maybe the 1976ers created for them, but that doesn't mean they don't have a responsibility 
responsibility of building on that which they inherited. And to make sure that these conversations are not happening in silos within these generations, we thought that it would be important to bring them together so that we can all listen to each other. You know, the young people listening to what some of us golden oldies had in mind and, you know, kind of what we would like to have, Mm. uh, but also for the older generation to listen to what young people are seeking and are desirous of, and maybe together we can all agree on what is the South Africa we want to live in and what is our individual responsibilities Mm. to building that. Now you with the Nelson Mandela Children's Hospital Trust and uh, the late great Nelson Mandela is the one person who was very fond of uh, the younger generation and you know at a time like this where you're talking about people taking responsibility you know for changing the things that they want to see changed in the country what is it that you think that uh, the youth can be learning from uh, just some of the great things and great lessons from Well, Utata left us a very clear message, didn't he? He said, it's all in your hands. He didn't say it's in the old people's hands. He didn't say it's in the young people's hands. He said, it is in your hands. And his ethos was around building a South Africa that all of us can be proud of. And I think that message that he left with that, it's in your hands to build a South Africa you can be proud of. It's not in our hands to just complain and just point out what is not working. What are we going to do to positively create the South Africa we want to be proud of? And really, this is a call to action, a call to say, citizens of South Africa, you have a responsibility. You can't have rights with no responsibilities. You have a responsibility to build a South Africa you can be proud of, and complaining on the sidelines doesn't do it. And that is Mary Jane Morifi, who is the global campaign leader at the Nelson Mandela Children's Hospital Trust, talking to Zekona Miso. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. For Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 1923 Central African Time used to listen to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Increased cases of abductions and killings of persons with albinism in Malawi have forced President Peter Musariga to champion the commemoration of the day for such people. The situation is getting out of hand as the United Nations and Malawi authorities say the country has recorded at least 65 attacks on people with albinism, including murders in a year. George Mohango reports from Lilongwe. President Peter Mtariga says attacks have been driven by the belief advanced by some witch doctors that albinos body parts can confer worth and good luck. This is why the High Court in Mzuzu, the northern region of Malawi, 
ban traditional doctors from doing their business as it is alleged that they are fueling such killings and abductions. Mutarika also recently rejected the idea of increasing prison sentences for people behind the attacks. He ruled out the introduction of death penalty saying it already exists for homicide in Malawi. Because some doctors, some called traditional healers can feed and but when you look at the person, I mean, However, a march is on the cards by a lawmaker, Bonica Lindo, to sensitize the masses to the dangers of killings and abductions of persons with albinism. I will walk from the old town in weeks to come. If the parliament does not discuss this issue and retain the death penalty, because it looks as if we know something. It looks as if we don't care. We are in the house just to drink tea. We are in the house just to receive money, but we don't care about the interests of our people. So I walk naked in protest that people are not discussing this issue. And this is a serious thing. And if they want to kick me out of the house, I am ready to be kicked out of the house. But our binos should live in Malawi as their country, should live in Malawi safely, should live in Malawi in peace. Kalindo said this during a radio interview on Media FM after he was asked the role of parliamentarians in terms of enacting laws protect persons with abenism. And I see no reason why government should waste a lot of resources to go and make research, to go and, 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 and ask other countries how they dealt with the issue. We've got our issues and let us sit down and if, deal with them. Police and other human rights organizations are jointly conducting district awareness campaigns aimed at mitigating the act. While some suspects have been arrested and convicted, what remains unclear is that bonds of persons with albinism, once killed, are alleged to be used for riches or boost businesses. Human rights campaigners think considered efforts are a must if all people with disability facing discrimination are to be protected. They also reject the aspect of death penalty. Albert Moyo is one such human rights campaigner. The first point is, is uh, as we, we talk of human rights, we are talking about people it's about human rights. So if government says, if the police says, shoot to kill, it means they are judging. In, in human rights, we always believe that everyone has got his own rights and right to life is paramount of all the human rights. And so everyone is proved to be guilty and uh, the after being proven to be guilty is when someone can be subjected to punishment. And there are punishments that are stipulated in the constitution and in the, in the judiciary system. When you have committed this sin, you have committed this crime, there's a punishment that is attached to that. So if they just say kill, why, what, what if, what if it, they, they kill somebody who was not maybe trying to abduct someone? So it doesn't make sense, I think, to give that, 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 that judgment. I know the police are becoming helpless. We are totally against this practice, this, this decision, and what I can advise the police is that they should stand up, bring in, I think, proper mechanism that I think that will help to curb this, this issue and not kill anybody. The punishment, if there's a punishment that one should be killed or should, should be sentenced to, 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 to death, that should be by the courts, but not by the police directly. The police are there to bring order, law and order, and so they cannot, they're not supposed to kill anyone until someone has been proven guilty. The media too has been banned from allowing adverts to do with traditional medicines. The commemoration at this time is in line with that of the international community themed celebrate diversity, promote inclusiveness and protect rights of people with albinism. And here in Malawi, the event was marked under the theme Together We Must End Human Rights Violations Against People with Albinism.
Following long with some Malawian authorities are in neighboring Tanzania to learn how they had dealt with similar attacks. Tanzania banned witch doctors last year to prevent further attacks and kidnappings targeting people with albinism, who lack pigment in the skin and appear pale. UN has since warned that Malawi's estimated 10,000 albinos face extinction if they continue to be murdered for their body parts. George Mohango, Channel Africa, Lilongwe. Twelve businesswomen entrepreneurs will gather in Lagos, Nigeria later this year for the second edition of the Africa Women Innovation and Entrepreneurship Forum. The event will be under the theme Accelerating Women's Economic Empowerment in Africa's Best Interest. The forum seeks to discuss the role of women in Africa's economic growth and unleash their full potential for successful business entrepreneurship. More from the Africa Women Innovation and Entrepreneurship Forum founder, Irene Ochem. You have uh, women playing a great role in different sectors of Africa's economy, in the services sector, in the manufacturing, and other sectors. And uh, if you think of uh, the services sector, where you have uh, wholesale and retail trade, telecommunications, financial services, insurance, education, environmental protection, real estate, business services, and advisory, tourism and hospitality, in an informal way, is involved a lot in agriculture. Actually, in uh, agriculture, you get more female farmers You say African female business owners enjoy less recognition and support than their male counterparts for their contribution to poverty reduction. Why is this? To some extent, it's a systemic problem, it's a structural problem, it's a cultural problem. There are many reasons why the African woman's contribution is less recognized and less appreciated than the male ones. African women, they have a less access to economic opportunities. They have less, for example, they have less access to finance. It's more difficult for women in Africa to raise capital, to raise finance for different reasons. It could be because they lack uh, the collateral, the assets like land and the other assets that you require for getting bank loans. What measures do you think can be taken to change these situations? Measures that can be taken at the policy level, uh, starting with the African government, okay, putting in place the right policy frameworks and the policy environment that will uh, more enhance opportunities for women. Do you think women are afraid of taking the front seat in leading businesses or even the world? Absolutely no. I don't think women are afraid of taking the front seat anywhere, whether in the office, in the corporate politics or in business. We are just about, in a couple of months, probably we'll have a, a woman, the strongest seat in the world, political seat in the world, Hillary Clinton. We are all watching and looking. I believe it will happen. So women are not afraid uh, at all. Please give us details on how the public can get involved in the forum. You can register. We have online registration. It's just enough to go to our website and, uh, and go to our registration portal and register directly. They can equally send us an email to info at icoconferences.com. That is Africa Women Innovation and Entrepreneurship Forum founder Irina Chem talking to Nosile Zuma. More women police officers are needed in Darfur, Sudan, to help protect millions of people displaced by conflict. The appeal has been made by Priscilla Makotose, police commissioner at the hybrid UN Africa Union mission there, known as UNIMID. She says, although women comprise the majority of internally displaced people in Darfur, women police officers are make up just 2% of the mission's formed police units. Daniel Dickinson caught up with Ms. Mokotose, 
During her recent visit to the UN headquarters to attend a global summit of police chiefs, she began by talking about what it is to what it's like rather to work for peace in Darfur. It's interesting and um, challenging at the same time, but uh, the UN family is very supportive. So at the end of the day, because uh, we are well trained back home when you come into the mission and with all this support, it's just one family doing their work, working very hard to promote peace and build the structures and the environment for peace in the Tafuri region. And how many other women police officers are there working in Darfur? Currently, I have about 16% of my deployment being IPOs, and uh, the formed police units are slightly less. Uh, they are about 2%, which out of the 13 FPUs comprising about 1,820, only 2% are women. And for the IPOs, individual police officers, we have a total of 1,530. And of those, only 16% is uh, female IPOs. Is it important to get more women police officers on the ground in Darfur? Very much so. And uh, that's why this conference is so important, this summit, because it gives us this opportunity to plead with the delegates who are here to provide us with more female police officers. You will realize that our mandate is provision of uh, protection to the IDPs. And you'll find that most of the IDPs in the IDP camps are females. And uh, you realize also that this cultural dimension in Darfur, where you have to respect their culture, and uh, for male IPOs to be interacting so much with the females is not really very much acceptable to them. That's why we would need a greater number of uh, female officers if it could be managed we would really appreciate and we are really pleading with the delegates who are here if they can take it upon themselves when they get back home, support our mission and bring in more women on board. What are the other challenges that you face? I understand sexual abuse is a, is a big issue there. Yes, it is. You will find that women are very vulnerable and children they are very vulnerable. That's why I was saying that uh, we need to capacitate. Generally, the have not much of rights, can I say that, in courts. So we are trying to empower them to get to understand that they have rights, they are human rights, they cannot be exploited, they cannot be abused. And if they are, they should report to the police who should take action to ensure that the perpetrators are brought to book. What additional skills can women bring that perhaps men, male police officers, can't bring? You know, there's this woman touch, this understanding, this uh, ability to to talk and uh, provide the necessary empathy. The males have it as well. We don't take that away. They can listen, they can provide empathy, but we because of the cultural background that I was talking about, they are freer. They have been socialized not to interact so much with the males. They interact more amongst the women. So while we 
allow them to get the time to be able to even maybe interact fully with males. They have this opportunity with the international uh, individual police officers to tell them their story, to hear and be sensitized, be empowered, so that they make peace their own need and they, are, they should work for it and they should drive for it so that they can be peace in, in, in Darfur and they can be also be able to protect themselves from abuse and uh, sexual exploitation. You know there are so many dynamics that are involved but it is important that uh, once they have the knowledge I'm sure they can better protect themselves or they will find the means of protecting themselves. They know where the help is for them and that is very important. And uh, mothers as well, you know, they are the ones who socialize the children. When they understand that they've got these rights, they'll socialize the children to respect the females and the female rights. That is Priscilla Mokotose, police commissioner at the Hybrid UN Africa Union mission in Darfur, known as Unimed, talking to UN Radio's Daniel Dickinson. Remember to follow us on Twitter and engage with us and give us feedback on any of the stories that we have here on Channel Africa. On Twitter, we are on Channel Africa One. That is Channel Africa One on Twitter. A young woman from Zimbabwe openly living with HIV has been sharing her personal story of survival with the world to give hope to people in her situation. Lois Maduru gave a moving testimony to delegates from around the world during a high-level meeting at the United Nations headquarters in New York on Ending AIDS. She is an advocacy officer for Africa Aid a community-based organization which, through its Zvandiri program, provides support to children and adolescents living with HIV. Maturu was just 11 years old when she tested positive, not only for HIV, but also for TB, diseases that have taken both her mother and her brother. She relived those moments with Jocelyn Sambira. You know what, knowing about my HIV status, it was one of the most uh, depressing moments for me. And it pained my heart so much. And I lost all my confidence that I had. And I thought I was going to die. That was the end of me. Because my mother and my younger brother had all passed away in the same week due to HIV and tuberculosis in 2010. And in 2002, by that time, I was 10 years old. So it was really a depressing moment for me. How was it announced to you? Where were you at that time when you found out? That period when I got really sick. When I went to the clinic, I was staying with one of my auntie, and she knew how my mother and my younger brother had passed away. So she went with me to the clinic, and she got me tested. When we went to the clinic at that time, it took her about three weeks for her to then say that I had HIV, and it's because uh, you were born with HIV, and that's why my mother and my younger brother had died. So she had been really been cancelled and you know, given information by the doctor that uh, he had done an HIV test to me and uh, encouraged her to inform me about my HIV status so that I'll be able to take my HIV treatment properly, knowing the advantages of taking HIV treatment so that I won't die. So that's how it happened. Growing up, what was your interaction with your friends, schoolmates? There's this um, silent stigma 
which is not like direct, especially when I stayed with one of my family members. And, you know, I went through emotional abuse, I went through physical abuse, even shouting at me. Because where I stay back in Zimbabwe, it's sort of like a ghetto place. And you know how houses are next to each other. And if you shout, people next door, they can actually easily hear. And he used to shout at me about my HIV status, saying, do you think you're special? If you want to die, just die. It's not me who made you to become HIV positive. Go and cry at your mother's grave. You know, saying such kind of things. And people within the next door could actually hear what he would say and everyone at the end of the day got to know that Lois is HIV positive. So, you know, hearing such kind of words in my life and at that time I was still at school, I tried killing myself by taking all of the medication that I had and I said I am so sick and tired of this situation that I have and I said I just want to die. I think I just need to die. I cannot contain this. I just need to die. So I was admitted to the clinic, to the hospital. And after I got discharged, I got massive counseling from the organization that I'm working with back in Zimbabwe. And they counseled me after I got discharged. And I said to myself, if I'm to live again, I want to make sure that I share my story and breaking the silence of the kind of realistic challenges that we face in a daily basis as adolescents and young people. And because for me, I had also began becoming a peer counsellor, doing home visits on a daily basis, so I knew also some of the challenges that adolescents and young people were facing, which were also beyond the kind of challenges that they were facing. So I said I want to share my story, be a, a motivational speaker to my other peers so that they also gain their confidence and they feel empowered to be able to fight stigma, even if the society still have a lot of stigma around them. And I said I want to make sure that they become confident and they are able to realize their dreams and hopes for the future. Do you think it's gotten better over the years in terms of stigma? Uh, in terms of stigma, I think we have come a long way in the fight against HIV and AIDS and including uh, issues around stigma, trying to make people understand that HIV is no longer a deadly disease because there is now treatment available and people who are HIV positive when they are put on HIV treatment, they get better. A lot of people feel that this generation is ignoring the epidemic and that could be a problem in trying to get rid of it. I can say to a greater extent it's very true. This is because of stigma and how HIV was introduced when it came because HIV was introduced as a disease that a person contracts after they are pre-muscuous or having um, so many sexual encounters, but people not really understanding that a person can be born with HIV and then contracted through using sharp objects, those kind of different things. So back in Zimbabwe, I always talk with a group of children who are in schools, and their greatest issues that they say about HIV is that I fear to know that I have HIV. And there was a study that was done in Zimbabwe, and it shows that adolescents and young people are not scared of HIV, but they are scared of getting pregnant because pregnancy, a person can easily see it and people can talk about it than when you're HIV positive. You can just secretly take your pills and no one will know. 
Lois Matur is a young woman from Zimbabwe who is openly living with HIV and she was talking to UN Radio's Jocelyn Sambira there. Well, my name is Festus Mukhai. I'm the former president of, of Botswana and, and I'm currently coordinating the peace agreement in South Sudan and I learned that this is the 50th year of the operation of Channel Africa and I want to congratulate you and uh, hope you continue. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Hi, I'm Zonke Dikana, a South African Afro-Soul musician, songwriter and producer. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And you can catch me on at Zonke Music on Twitter and Zonke Dikana on Facebook. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Nineteen forty-five Central African time. Here's Joala Netulo with your economic news. Thank you, Pumelele. Good evening. Auditing firm KPNG has stepped down as auditor of FIFA. The World Soccer Body says it welcomed the opportunity to work with a new audit firm. KPMG confirmed it had resigned but declined further comment. It said in September it had launched an internal review of its Swiss business over audits of FIFA's financial record keeping. FIFA is facing serious allegations involving financial transactions under Swiss and U.S. investigations. President Gianni Infantino has said he has launched a comprehensive financial audit of the organization's finance function. Kenya will get a World Bank loan of $1.1 billion for infrastructure projects in the country's arid northern region. The loan is the latest in a series to Kenya, which amount to $5.5 billion, excluding the new package. The funds will be used to build roads, improve water and energy supplies, and support livestock keeping. They will, they will have a maturity of 50 years and an interest rate of less than 1%. The package was prepared at the request of Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta. It is unclear when the funds will be released. Telecoms group MTN will take immediate steps to list shares in Nigeria as part of a deal to settle a dispute over unregistered SIM cards and will also issue an apology. According to a copy of the agreement seen by Reuters, the company agreed to pay a fine of $1.7 billion in a settlement with the Nigerian government for failing to deactivate more than 5 million unregistered SIM cards. Nigeria agreed to cut the fine initially demanded by almost 70% after MTN threatened to shut down its operations there. 
Private investments in Moroccan state-owned land leased to farmers and investors have reached $1.4 billion at the end of 2015. To attract foreign and local investors, the kingdom has been leasing farmland of 420 to 50% of its market value on long-term contracts up to 40 years. Morocco holds regular tenders as suitable state farmlands are gradually identified and made available. Morocco is trying to modernize its farms to improve food and security and advert the kind of price rises that contributed to popular unrest in Arab countries in 2011. And finally, Microsoft Corp has agreed to buy LinkedIn for for rather $26.2 billion in its biggest deal ever. This deal will combine the software giant's fast-growing cloud services business with an online network of 433 million professionals. LinkedIn shares soared 48% to early New York Stock Exchange trading and Microsoft shares were down 4%. Reid Hoffman, chairman of LinkedIn's board and the company's controlling shareholder, said the deal has his full support. Taking a look at the financial indicators this hour, the US dollar is trading at 15 rand 06 to the South African rand at 10.99 to the Botswana Pula and at 10.68 to the Zambian Kwacha. It is also trading at 0.70 to the British pound and 0.88 to the euro. On the commodities market, gold is trading at $1,282 and platinum at $996 an ounce. Finally, the price of Brent crude oil is at $50.41 a barrel. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. All right, thank you very much, Olanet. It's time for sports news now. Musibudi Makura is in the studio. Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with rugby news, Springbok coach Alistair Kotsia has called up Mornes Stain to the national team as a cover-up for the injured Pat Lambie. The 31-year-old Stain currently plying his trade at the top 14 side. Stardier Franas was notified of the recall while he was in the country on a holiday. Stain's French side failed to qualify for next weekend's semi-finals after a horror season in which they finished 12th out of 14 teams, one spot above the relegation zone. Lambie will sit out Saturday's second test against Ireland at Ellis Park in Johannesburg after suffering a concussion against the visiting Irish in the box embarrassing and historic first ever home defeat to Ireland. And still on rugby news, the Kenya Lionesses finished second overall at the Roma Sevens, tumbling to a 4-0 loss to a South African select side in the final played in Rome, Italy. They trailed 2-0 at the interval, conceding four converted first-half tries before letting in 12 points in the second half. Our correspondent Francis Mutegi reports. The two sides reached the final by virtue of securing the top two positions in the round-robin phase of the tournament, South Africa topping Kenya by 24-0 in the final league phase match. The Lionesses said earlier dispatched Italy 33-5, building on Friday's 46-0 and 66-0 results over Venezuela and Les Spinoza, respectively. 
the Lionesses were the most disciplined team during the two-day tournament and were given the Roma Sevens Fair Play Award. The girls are using these invitational tournaments to prepare for the World Olympics that are set for August 3rd to 24th in Rio de Janeiro. On to cricket news, India's cricket board has received 55 applications for the position of head um, cricket coach. Speculation is rife on the possible candidates, including Australia's Stuart Law as well as Dave Watmore. The board has kept the list of applicants tightly under wraps, but former team director Ravi Sa- um, Satri, current chief selector Sandeep, um, Sandeep, um, Sandeep Patel, as well as ex-fast bowler Venkatesh Prasad, among those who have publicly expressed their interest. The Board of Control for Cricket in India, the BCCI, posted the advert for the job earlier this month after Satri's contract ended after the World T20 Cup in April. The BCCI said on Sunday that the list of 57 applicants will now be scrutinised with a final decision expected to be made before the India tour of the West Indies in July. On to football news, after a tired week in the history of Nigerian football, during which two former football greats, Stephen Keshi, as well as Shaibu Amadu, passed away, the burial plans for Stephen Keshi are expected to commence this week, with meetings to be held with various strata of government. Amadu was buried on Saturday, according to Muslim Rights. Channel Africa's Tony Obana reports from Lagos in Nigeria. Indications have emerged that Keshi will be buried in his ancestral home of Ela in Delta State with the federal government, Edo Delta and Cross River State governments already indicating interest to be part of the burial ceremony. More states are expected to indicate interest. Family sources said Abuja, the federal capital territory, will be the first port of call with players of the national team expected to be led by Super Ego skipper John Mikelobi to play a part in the burial ceremony. His children are also expected to start arriving from the United States later this week as arrangements speak for his burial. And finally, Netball News. Wales national netball team have arrived in South Africa ahead of the Test Series against South Africa's national netball team, the Small Proteus. The Test Series gets underway on Friday at the Albert Lutuli International Convention Centre in Durban. This will be the 11th meeting between the two nations, with South Africa having won on all 11 occasions. South Africa's team captain, Marika Hortenhausen, says despite the stats' advantage they hold over Wales, they are still wary of the eighth-ranked nation. I think they definitely um, chose a strong team to um, represent their country coming here for the three tests. So I think every team wants to improve every time they go out on, out on court. And um, it's been a couple of months since the World Cup, like you said. But I think they've really improved. It's going to be a physical, tough, hard, um, quick game out there. That's why we know they play. And we're going to have to um, be able to keep up with that and even um, be better than we were at World Cup in order to take this test series. Those are sports news at the South. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. Thank you very much, Mosibudi. 1954 Central African Time. Let's recap our top stories. The newly reconciled leaders of South Sudan. 
Apologies. Now the newly reconciled leaders of South Sudan call for a South Africa-style Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Today, the world shines the spotlights on people living with albinism. And that wraps up Africa Digest for today. From myself, Spumela Lezondi, producer Luanda Maume, technical producer Wiseman Mangale, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you very much for listening. Send us emails, info at channelafrica.co.za, SMSs, plus 27796957930, tweets to Channel Africa 1. Here's Ringo Matlingozi, Egusin. Oh,
na ko ste basai so kiye itoluma hanene nde fa 20 hours ye ke sebereza srozi ya chana afrika ye hasanya zayo na kwali na zalifasi ilifa internet